want you to take a real good look at this jacket. You see it? That bad boy is brand new. Bought it for y'all. See that napkin? See how it matches that tie? Brand new just for y'all. Now let me show you what I do with jackets. If your granddaddy was in the field, he'd take his jacket off and he'd probably roll up his sleeves, which I'm about to start to do. And I work in different kind of fields, but I get hot too. So hopefully and prayerfully we'll be able to make some progress this week. Hopefully we'll be able to do some things this week that, you know, that needs being done. And mainly that attends to not only the saving of souls, and that'll be up to you all. I don't know all the people in the community here necessarily, so that'll be up to you all to try to invite them, to try to get them here, to try to give them maybe what would be for them one of the first opportunities to hear the gospel. I don't know. But in addition to that, while we're doing that, we also want to be certain that we're doing something for ourselves, that we're allowing ourselves to grow that we're allowing ourselves to be made better. As a matter of fact, I've been saying this really, in general at least, for a good 10 years or so. When I hold a gospel meeting, and I have plenty of opportunity generally to do such, I like to consider every one of those gospel meetings from two perspectives. On the one hand, and mainly for me, it is an evangelistic effort. I think that's what it needs to be. I think that's where our main focus, our attention needs to be. I think as individual members in a local congregation, um, you all need to be doing your part this week because we're working together in this effort. And that's going to include inviting some of your family family members, your friends, your co-workers, hopefully not classmates this time of year, but, you know, really putting an effort into this so that we can work together so that we have that opportunity. And even more than that, so that they have the opportunity to hopefully open up God's Word, hear the Gospel preached, and maybe have some questions. And that's about where we want to bring them this week. We want to get them to the point of asking questions, of being interested, of understanding that there's something in this book that's not in any other book, of understanding that whatever's in this book that's not in any other book is something that can help them and ultimately save them. That's where we want to try to get those people during this week. So that's the evangelistic side. Now, on the other side of that, while I'm doing that, I want to just go on and tell you up front, it's also my duty and my mind, it may be different from what you were expecting, but that is not only to be evangelistic, but to be encouraging. Because I've learned a long time ago, as many meetings as I've been able to be involved in, and that's been a blessing, that you don't go in a place in a few days, which I appreciate you all going all week, very few people do that anymore, but you don't go into a place over the course of a few days and pull people in and out of the streets and the highways and byways, bring them in, preach a lesson or two or three to them, however many opportunities you have, and then you just convert their souls, they go on about their happy, merry lives, and they enter inside the gates of heaven. That's not the way it works. No, the way it works is when individual Christians, like me, like you are here, like I am in other places, when we get the understanding and the grasp that as we are encouraged, so we encourage others. So that people see our lives, not just a momentary thing. We do maybe a time or two a week on the Lord's Day, for example. Maybe a Wednesday night, you know, if if God's really lucky. But they understand what our lifestyles are all about. Who we are, what we do, what we represent is most important. So I'm going to try to do a little bit this week mixing that in and adjusting and adapting what we talk about over the course of this week 
to make sure that we constantly encourage ourselves. Because what needs to happen is that you get enough of a boost in your heart this week, and I do as well, that we can go on another week and another and another, and that we always are able to drop back and focus on a time like this one and say, well, that meeting, that series of meetings together, that encouraged me. That gave me strength. That gave me the stamina to keep on keeping on, okay? So that's what I want to agree with you to do. Can you agree with me on that? We will work together this week in the efforts of evangelism, and we will encourage one another. Now, because of that, I want to add another level to that and tell you that this is just in my mind, not that you would change a billboard or a flyer or anything else, but in my mind, because of those two efforts being combined, I don't consider this a gospel meeting. I consider this a gospel revival, okay? A gospel revival, okay? Now, the reason we may not use, and I don't know why you would or would not, but I think the reason sometimes we fail to use the word revival anymore in the church is because what? Because the denomination world has stolen the word. I mean, a revival can mean any number of things. It can mean a, a cursory study of God's word sometimes, but it can also mean for them, you know, a, a get-together, a dance-off, a cheering session, a testimony-giving session. It can mean so many things. And so because of that, I'm not sure that we have you know, as much confidence as we maybe once did. Going to a friend, going to a neighbor, knocking on the door and saying, hey, will you come to our revival? How's the term's been taken? But, when we say to them, will you come and visit with us at our gospel revival, we're clear. We are here to discuss, to examine, and to apply the gospel of Jesus Christ to our lives and to allow that to be placed in the lives of others, if for no more reason, for the very first time. And I believe we have biblical authority for such. Open your Bibles, if you would, to the book of Nehemiah for a little bit this morning. Nehemiah chapter 8 is where we're going to be. I don't know how many times uh, you've studied the book of Nehemiah. Maybe you've studied it a few times. Maybe you've studied it many a time. But nonetheless, we're going to look at some of the texts therein, Nehemiah chapter 8 today. There's a whole lot in the book of Nehemiah that needs to be understood, needs to be read. But basically what has happened up into chapter 8, and we just have to jump right in, we don't have the time to do anything else. But basically what has happened up into chapter 8, in a nutshell, is that Nehemiah and, and, the, and those that were with him, Ezra the scribe and others, that they have gotten together and rebuilt the walls around the city of Jerusalem. That's the gist of it. That's in a nutshell. As a matter of fact, chapters 4 through 6 reveal that. Chapter 6 and verse 15 says, They rebuilt the walls around Jerusalem, get this, in only 51 days. And we're not talking about a fence, a chain-link fence, a barbed wire fence, a, 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 whole, a, a posted fence. We're talking about walls, walls that were thick enough probably to drive chariots around the tops roadways, houses, all sorts of things were in these walls. So these walls are extremely high, they're extremely thick, they're extremely large, and would have been very difficult to build. And they rebuilt the walls. And in rebuilding the walls, it seems that that brought, and get the key here, here's where we're going, that that brought within their minds a sense of revival. 
in the, in the minds, in the minds of the people, the individuals there that lived in and around that place, they had to have felt a, a proverbial shot in the arm and a sense of revival, a new sense of energy, a new sense of enthusiasm in standing back and looking at all the things they'd been able to accomplish and how well they had done that, how they had done that in a cooperative effort. Matter of fact, the same text back there in chapter 6 says of these people that they had a mind to work. So they had gotten together and they had worked. But I want to make a comparison here because I see this. I hadn't seen it here. Well, yeah, I have. These, these new TVs, this new area in the back. There's, there are several changes physically that have gone on in this building, just physically in this building since I've been here last. And I know that makes you feel good. I know that excites you. I know someone says, well, it's about time. Others say, well, I'm just glad that we did. That's revival. But that's not the revival that we need nor that they needed then. As a matter of fact, by the time you get to chapter 7, we're about to start to read it, you find out these people basically step back and say, you know what, these walls are great. Our efforts are to be commended. However, we need our spiritual lives to be revived. And I know it is the case in every congregation, in every place, that there are individual souls that need themselves to be revived. The psalmist himself, David, wrote and said, Wilt thou revive us again? We need to be revived. There's a point, there's a time in all of our lives, and maybe it's for brief momentary seconds, maybe it's for longer periods, when we need the proverbial CPR to be done on us to bring and to breathe the life that God gave us back into our souls. So if you want to put a title above what we're going to be talking about this morning, and we won't get very far, I understand that. We'll take the time that we have, that's all. I want you to put in your minds these things we're about to enumerate are going to be what I would call the measurable marks of revival. And I want you to take each and every one of these points that I'll help you to see in the text right here, Take them, put them on a literal checklist if you must, put them on a checklist in your mind and your heart if you will, and go through and say, do I have this quality? And if not, I can then question myself and say, hmm, how have I been revived? Or use the same point to say, here's how well I will be revived. And hopefully our efforts this week and as we go throughout the rest of our lives will contain some of that. So I'm in Nehemiah chapter 8 and verse 1. I'll be reading from the King James, so you may see a little bit different wording there if you're of some different uh, translation, but nonetheless, same points. Here's what it says. Ezra, I mean, uh, Nehemiah 8 and verse 1. And all the people gathered themselves together as one man into the street, and that was before the water gate, and they spake unto Ezra the scribe, bring the book of the law of Moses, which the Lord God had commanded Israel. And Ezra the priest brought the law before the congregation. The men and women of all the congregation could hear with understanding upon the first day of the seventh month. Now we'll read more incrementally, but because I'm dyslexic, we'll take it in small pieces and you'll be thankful for, for such. But I want you to notice in the very beginning of this, the first mark or measurable mark that you can see of revival that these people committed to is that they had a hunger for the Word of God. You see what happened? I already mentioned it. Chapters 4 through 6, they had been through a revival, physical revival. Buildings and, and had been established. Walls had been built. Efforts had been put forth. But there came a point when they turned to Ezra the scribe, the godly man among them, I guess, 
And they said, Ezra, bring us the book. Bring us the book of the law of Moses. Bring it into our presence. Read it to us. Help us to understand such. Now you know as well as I do, you're already connecting dots, you're drawing arrows here and there. That is exactly what the Lord Church, church needs in every place. That is exactly what I need in my life if I'm going to have spiritual revival. I'm going to have to have the book. Now I wonder in my life and in my mind, and I know that over time, you know, I may be one thing today and I was one thing yesterday and a different thing 10 years ago, but I know in my life there have been times, say for example, if I just called out to my own, my own family, I mean the ones that live under my roof, and I said, bring me uh, the book. What do you reckon they would have brought? Some, some bestseller, some magazine, some periodical, some, you know, some, some, maybe they brought me a tablet or, or, or uh, some kind of computer and said, well, I guess she wanted to read this. No. When they called upon Ezra the scribe, they were specific and they said, bring the book of the law of Moses. Why? Because that's they, what they knew they needed. Now, you're going to notice through the course this week, I hope, that I don't do a lot of flipping and flopping and such. So if I ask you to turn to a text like Ezra, I mean, I want to call it Ezra, but like Nehemiah chapter 8, it's the story of Ezra. If, if I turn to a text like this, you can probably turn there, find your place, lock it down, hold it down, tie it off, and, and we'll study it. But I want to turn for a couple of times this morning just for this purpose. Go with me, if you would, to the book of Psalms. You're not too far from it. Go over with me. You can turn to your right. Go to the book of Psalm. When you get there, go to Psalm chapter 19. Now, Psalm 19 is a wonderful, wonderful chapter. It's not very long, but it's one that we should read on our own. But Psalm 19, I want you to notice with me just verses 10 and 11, okay? Verses 10 and 11. Psalm, well, let's back up to 7 to, to get our idea here. Psalm 19 and verse 7. For law is perfect, converting the soul. The testimony of the Lord... Uh, Lord is sure, making the wise simple. The statutes of the Lord are right, rejoicing the heart, and commandment of the Lord is pure, enlightening of the eyes. For the fear of the Lord is clean, enduring forever. The judgments of the Lord are true and righteous altogether. Verse 10. More to be desired. Talking about the Word of God, the Scriptures. More to be desired than what? Someone read that next part. Than gold or fine gold and sweeter than honey of the honeycomb. So that, that asks a question within itself. What do I, myself, Jim Burrow, what do I personally think and consider about the book of the law? What is it worth? What is the value of such a book as this? Now, it's been uh, 16 years ago. My daughter's 17, so I'm assuming it's sometime in the range of 16 years ago. Uh, my wife and I and, and her, she was the only child we had at the time. We were traveling. I was preaching somewhere. We got ready to leave that, that assembly that day, and she took one of my Bibles. It wasn't either one of these, but she took one of my Bibles, and uh, she closed it away. I'd left it on the pew, and she got, this is my diaper bag. She got the diaper bag. She stuck it in there and went to walk off. And I had to check myself. 
I stopped and I said, hold up. Oh, no, no, no. Don't you put my, go on my Bible. You don't put my Bible in a diaper bag. Matter of fact, I'll tell you the truth right now. If I leave, and I, you know, I, I want it back, but if I leave here any time this week and you find a Bible laying on a pew and it's got Jim Merle written in it, check it out. Look at it good, but leave it there. Don't touch my Bible. It's a personal thing. That's the printed copy. That's the leather-bound copy. That's the pages here that I'm familiar with. And that's where I know that if I turn to a certain passage or ask you to, when I get there in mind, it's going to be right here. Not down there, it's right here. I know where it is on the page. I'm familiar with these, these texts that I use often. That's only a physical illustration of the honor, the respect, the love that we should have for the Word of God. And so when it is called upon by Ed, to Ezra, bring us the book, bring us the book of the law of Moses, they knew full well how important that was. Ezra knew exactly what they were looking for. He knew exactly what they would need. Now you can put this in your margin. We won't necessarily turn there. Go back to Nehemiah chapter 8 if you moved. Put this in your margin. But in Job chapter 23, I believe it's the beginning in verse 10. You can read 10 through 12-ish. Job talks about the Word of God in a similar manner, not saying that it is better or more valuable than fine gold. Job says to him, the Word is more important than, quote, his necessary food. Not, not the snack that he ate last night before bed, not but more important to him than necessary food. Make that comparison. That is the Word of God. So we have these people here in uh, Nehemiah chapter 8. It says, And all the people gathered themselves together as one into the street, which is before the water gate. And spake unto Ezra the scribe, said, Bring the book of the law of Moses, which the Lord had commanded to Israel. Now keep up the reading. We read through verse 2, but let's tie that forward a little bit. And Ezra the priest brought the law, before the congregation, all the men and women of the congregation could hear, and all the men and women could heal, hear an understanding upon the first day of the seventh month. So we have a time frame set. Verse 3, And he, that's Ezra, read therein before the street, that read therein before the street, and it was before the water gate from morning until midday. Before the men and the women and those that were of understanding and all the ears of all the people were attentive Unto the book of law. And Ezra the scribe stood upon a pulpit of wood. And he made for himself for that purpose. And beside him stood. And if you want to volunteer to read those next 15 names. Have at it. But I'm not. 15 other men. Basically. 13, 15. Depending on the translation. Stood there beside him. As Ezra read the book of the law. What are we learning already? Number one. They had a hunger for the Word of God. We want the Word. Bring it to us. Bring it to us. Number two, they had a hearing of the Word of God. They didn't just say, you know, bring, bring that copy of the law and bring it in and set it within our presence. And as we look upon it with awe and, and, and honor and, and, and respect, we will look at it, we'll, we'll walk around it, we will bow down to it, we'll raise our hands before it. They said, go get it and read it. Read it. 
That's very simple. That's exactly what we ought to do. It's very basic, but it's exactly what they were, what they were experiencing right here. Now, if you look at some of the details of this, and we just read through enough of it to get the gist of it anyway, when they were hearing the Word of God with physical ears, listening to the Word of God, what exactly is going on in this, in this picture, this scenario? Number one, hearing the Word of God required an audience. You say, well, that, uh, that's, uh, boy, that's Einstein's greatest hit right there. Uh, of course, he reads it. There's got to be somebody here to, there to hear it. That goes with the old adage, you know, does it, if a tree falls in the woods, does it make a sound? Of course, he had to have someone there to hear it or else we would not know such. The key to what's happening here, however, in my mind, that divides sometimes things what happen nowadays, is that these people were willing to hear with a passion. When it states here clearly that they heard the book of the law of Moses read from morning until midday, what do you think about? Just suggestions about approximately what time comes to our minds. Potential. Most of the time we jump to this and we say, well, that may have been as early as 6 a.m. and maybe till noon. If it is at six hours, okay? That is a long time to do anything. But suppose that it is. Should they be respected for such? I, I say they should. I say at least a pat on the back. A congratulations, good job, boy. Maybe it didn't actually last that long. But supposing it lasted inside of these two criteria from morning until midday, then maybe that narrows it down to, I don't know, maybe 9 to, nine to 12, three hours. Is that enough? It's enough for us to consider uh, that they read a lot of the book of the law, that they examined it pretty closely. So I learned about these people that they had a passion for it, and they weren't necessarily time conscious about it. They stood up, and we'll get to that in a little while. They stood up and they listened attentively to the book of the law. That's the audience. Now we learn something else about that audience. We read on into this. We find out that this was not just a group of men who were oftentimes most dedicated to the law. This was not a group of adults necessarily that just, you know, decided it was time to dedicate themselves to the hearing of the law. No, it says in all the people, those who are of understanding. What that seems to reveal to me, and maybe I'm connecting too many dots, drawing too many lines, that seems to reveal to me that we have an assembly made together of basically all the people that were available. The children, the teenagers, the adults, the elderly, anywhere in between, they're all there. And we live in a society, and it's happening more and more. Uh, it's happened for decades in the denominations. It's happened inside the church, you know, sporadically from time. When somebody says, well, you know what? When it comes to just, you know, reading the Word of God, and this might be more like the worship hour. When it comes to that, we don't need these, these kids uh, bothering us, interrupting us, uh, disturbing us. Put them off to a side area here. Get them out from among us, and, and just let this be focused on those who it matters to. When the law of Moses is being read right here, it's being read to everybody. 
Everyone has opportunity. Everyone has a chance to hear the word led. Now, now when you look back and examine this, it was a tradition even in that day of the Israelites as a whole anyway that they would constantly be teaching the children the law. Constantly have them learning these things when they rise up, when they go to bed, when they're all in between. They would spend time in the word. There, in a sense... Today exists, and sadly it has intermingled into the church as well. There's definitely a famine in the land as far as that goes. There's not enough being given here. There's not enough honor. There's not enough respect. There's not enough uh, really just time being spent in a pure, unadulterated reading, examination, a study of the Word of God. But as these people are looking for revival, that's exactly what they want. So as they're hearing, number one, there's an audience. Number two, it said specifically, and I've already crossed it, so I won't spend much time on it, but there was an attention given there too. As these people, in, in the way that they are, the way that they're presented there, their attention was there, according to verse 3, from morning until midday. They were attentive, that's the latter part of verse 3, unto the book of the law. When I was a kid, preachers used to always talk about if they were going to call something out, they would say, okay, just, uh, you know, while we're, while we're worshiping, don't pass notes. You don't chew gum. Ain't nobody passing no notes. They may be texting, but ain't nobody passing no notes. If you're a big kid, if you're a big kid chew a piece of gum. If you stick it on a pew, at least let somebody know where you stuck it. But if we are studying the Word of God, the attention needs to be given. We know this. We need to be looking to the Word of God. It's something that, that should hold, at least for us as mature adults, all of our attention. Number next. Not only is there a hunger for the Word of God, there is a hearing of the Word of God. Look at the next part of this. Just keep up the reading there. And Ezra the scribe, and again, that's those people's names there, verse 5. And Ezra opened up the book in the sight of all the people. For he was above all the people. And when he opened it up, and all the people stood up. We have that reference again. And Ezra blessed the Lord, the great God, verse 6. And all the people answered, Amen, with lifting up their hands and bowed their heads and worshipped the Lord with their faces to the ground. There's a hunger for the Word of God. There's a hearing of the Word of God. And then here's something else. There is an honor being given to the Word of God. An honor. I can remember years and years ago, and this is, uh, this is on me. I was in a, in a worship service at one time, and I was an adult. Now, I'm not talking about a little kid. I was an adult. And I was in a worship service one time, and I got up and went to the back. And when I, you know, had to go out to the back for a minute, when I got to the back, there was a fellow there, hey, Jim, and he started to talk. And before I knew it, we were in conversation there for just a moment. And somebody stepped up to me. I think he was uh, considered him like a, uh, what do you call him, people? They ain't necessary, but we show like it. Uh, usher. It was an usher in the back. Yeah, usher. He didn't have a badge, but he was one of them. And he stepped over and he said, you mind being quiet? I'm trying to hear the word of God preached. And I got mad. I should have got mad at myself. The word of God deserves an honor 
a respect, a, a different mindset, a different attitude. As a matter of fact, there are a few things you can learn from this and what we just read across. Mainly, it's found there in verse 5, the middle to latter part of it. It says that these people, number one, they stood up. Now, whether it's three hours, six hours, 30 minutes, I don't know, it was a lengthier time, but they stood up. I had an instructor in the Memphis School of Preaching, Garland Elkins. He has passed away now. And he, he wasn't going to condemn anybody for or against this, but a practice that he had and that he adapted to us as we were in one of his classes uh, each, each quarter, he always said to us, if we read more than 10 verses, and I don't know what was biblical about 10 or less, but he said, if you, we read together more than 10 verses, stand up. And we did. You stood up right behind your table and we read together. When we finished that section, however long it was, could be 10 verses, could be 10 chapters, we sat down. Some of you remember a day when if someone, if you were maybe even in a church situation, you're sitting down in the pew and someone walks up to you, you don't have to do it, but to shake your hand, what do you do? Stand up. Stand up. A woman comes in the room, before she can sit down, what happens? Why, the men stand up. We respect people. We respect their minds. We respect uh, their hearts. They stood up. But let me show you something. That is not necessarily positional. Okay? Not necessarily positional because it goes on to say they stood up. That in verse 5, the latter. And it also adds to that that they lifted up their hands and they bowed their heads and they put their faces. Yeah, I'm going to do it. To the ground. But it's not positional. It's not necessarily a matter of a position. You know, I'm not going to prove my respect to God by throwing my face to the carpet. By raising up my hands. By standing. But I tell you what. If I am not willing to do that, those positions in my mind, I prove much to the Lord. If I cannot in my heart bow down before the Lord and His Word, I have shown Him much about my character. If I cannot in my mind, and I'm just using it for what we usually would see it today. If I cannot in my mind, hear that, like the singing here last night, the enthusiasm, the energy that went into that. If I cannot in my mind lift up my hands, that proves much about my character before the throne of God. We've got to have the right attitude. We've got to have the right mindset. True story, I guess, supposedly true that's been told over and over is about a man who came and he was a visitor to the local congregation. He came in, according to the account, he sat on the second pew on the left-hand side. So it happened to be vacant, so we could obviously get someone there. Second pew left-hand side from the back. He came in and the preacher was preaching. He got to a certain point and this man said, Amen. That's all right, we can handle that. The preacher preached on a little bit farther, and this man said, Hallelujah. Now, people turned around. They got curious. A few minutes later, preacher preached. This fella, he said, Praise God. They crossed a line or two, because when he did that, he raised his hands up. 
fell on the back pew there leaned in. And he said, sir, what are you doing? His answer, I got religion. And his answer, you didn't get it here. It's about right. Friends, not that we're calling for a service that is out of order. Not that we're standing against the word of God to prescribe to us for it to be specifically, decently done and in order. But if at least in my mind, I cannot get excited and fired up, for lack of better terms, for the Word of God being studied, read, preached, taught through song, what have you, to worship before God and to give Him the honor and the homage and the respect that He deserves, if that does not fire me up, friends, I am as cold as a coal of ice. And I've said this before, and I'll say it right now. It is easier, easier to calm a zealot than to wake a corpse. And I appreciate enthusiasm. I appreciate people who, when the Word of God is being studied and examined, they, they in their minds, if no other place, they see, they feel, they know. So this is not about their position, but it's altogether about their praise. So that was it. Point three. Number one, do I have a hunger for the Word of God? Number two, do I have a hearing of the Word of God? Number three, do I have an honor that's given to the Word of God? Now read verse seven and eight. How about, how do I handle the Word of God? There has to be a handling of the Word of God as well. Verse seven and eight in Jeshua. And yeah, those guys again. Cause the people to understand. And the people stood in their place so they read the book of the law. Now look at these key phrases here. Distinctly and gave the sense. And caused them to understand the reading. What's happening now? In a nutshell, and this is definitely watering it down to say it. In a nutshell, Ezra gets up to read the book of the law. While he is there, there are these men 13, 15 men standing there around him. They're hearing just like the rest of the audience there. They're giving attention just like the rest of the audience there. They are praising God just like the rest of the audience there. They go through all of that. And at the end, when people had question, when people wanted to know more, these men, along with Ezra and I'm sure others, stepped in the crowd and started to help them to get it started to help them to get an understanding of it. This is, on multiple facets, this is the same thing as what Philip did to a little known man called the Ethiopian eunuch. What did the eunuch do? He'd read. Matter of fact, according to what we know now, he had read through the book of Isaiah, gotten toward 53, began to hear about this lamb that was set before the slaughter and this and such, and he had question about it. And Philip, as he in the song, he run, run, Philip preached. And he got there and he sat down with him and he spent time with him and he, under, he helped him to understand such. Second Timothy 2.15. King James translation is, is good, good enough, but it could do better in this area. It says, study to show thyself approved. That's give diligence, American Standard Version. Study to show thyself approved. 
A workman, study show thyself approved unto God. A workman needeth not be ashamed. Watch the phrase here. Rightly dividing the word of truth. The American Standard said, and I believe the new NASB, as well as maybe the new King James, I'm not sure, says handling aright. Handling aright. What does that mean? It means you can handle a wrong. You can look into the word of God and you can see something and say, well, there it is, Joe. That's exactly what I've been looking for. And I can live my life the way I've been living it. And I can be okay with it. And Sam says, man, you're wrong. You better handle that word right. You better examine that again. You better look and see what that means. You better, thumb, you better thumb and flip and you better find. And you better know. These people here were given the opportunity to have the word of God literally handled aright. It was understood. It was made distinctive. Now let me drive a little peg here. And I'm certainly not picking on Sonny. Never heard Sonny preach in my life that I recall. Maybe on the tape or something, I don't know. He never heard me before a day, I guess. So no accusation going. But what this reminds me of is that when we study the Word of God, say together in an organized fashion, like this hour, the next, and the next throughout these weeks, when we do that, the Word of God needs to be understandable. I mean, I've sat at the feet of some men who would call themselves scholars who wouldn't allow you to call them anything except you put doctor in front of it, who will tell you things you've never heard. And, and describe things in such a way to where you walk away and you hear the conversation in the back. Boy, that's a good and I don't know what he said. I don't know what he meant. But it had to have been good. This is enough in Alabama. You may have heard this. Where, where I'm from, Munford, Alabama, 1,800 people, we say something like this. Just because the water's muddy don't mean it's deep. Doesn't mean there's anything there. These people were given an opportunity to understand. And so preaching within itself needs to have an explanation. But that explanation within itself needs to be understandable, number one. Second, it needs to be useful. What were they reading this day? The book of the law of Moses. What does that have to do with them? That's the law under which they were living. Now, we find out by the end of this chapter, even there was things about this law they weren't doing. They weren't obeying the Word of God. Maybe they didn't have a full enough grasp of it by this period of time in their lives. But what they were doing here and what they were studying together to them was useful. I preached at a congregation in Clarksville, Tennessee. It's been uh, 12 years ago-ish. No, it's been a lot longer than that. Wow. A lot longer than that. This is 2002-3, whatever that is. And uh, when I left that congregation, uh, a good friend of mine actually took over the work there, started preaching in that locale. It's been, it was about two months later. One of the elders called me. Actually, one called me. They were all sitting together in a room. I was on conference call and didn't know it. And he said, do you have any idea why, and he called the, the boy's name, why he is teaching this class to us? He described the class, said he's teaching the class on world religion. And I thought, okay, you know, Jehovah's Witness, Mormon, you know, some of that. No, Hindu, Buddhism, what have you. Is that all bad? No. 
but they were nine miles. This congregation was nine miles off the beaten path. 35 miles from a grocery store. And the elder said, we just don't believe we need this. We ain't sure why he's doing it. Wasn't useful. Uh, yes, it, would, it might help someone in some city, but there wasn't doing it. We're going to have to close right there. We'll, we'll stop, but I want to encourage you to look on a little bit farther. The last part of this, the last section of this, as a matter of fact, goes on to tell us how important it is that they would heed the Word of God. And it doesn't matter what else we do in life. We can hear, uh, we can hunger, we can hear, we can honor, we can handle. But until we heed the Word of God, we are not having a spiritual revival. I appreciate your time.